Thank you again. So good morning, and I'm really excited to be here and to have the chance to speak with you about the pulmonary implications of sickle cell disease. There's a lot more to it, it turns out, than acute chest syndrome. And what if I were to tell you that sickle cell disease is actually a pulmonary condition, and the main issue is airway remodeling and remodeling of the pulmonary bed vasculature? Okay, so I'm a pulmonologist, and I admit I'm a little bit biased, so that might be taking it a wee bit too far. Uh, but seriously, the lungs play a central role in this disorder of the blood, and many patients ultimately die of pulmonary complications. So the main goal of today's talk is to get everyone to remember to be mindful of the lungs when taking care of patients with sickle cell disease. We're going to start off today just briefly with some background in epidemiology and then move on to sickle cell lung disease and take a look at pulmonary hypertension, asthma, airway hyperreactivity, and obstructive sleep apnea syndrome, all as they relate to sickle cell disease. Then we'll dig a little bit deeper and take a look at the underlying pathophysiology or what is known to date. We'll also take a look at some of the underlying cellular and molecular mechanisms. And then finally, take a look at current and future opportunities for prevention as well as treatment in this disorder. So as you all know, sickle cell disease is an autosomal recessive disorder. There's a single amino acid substitution. So this occurs in the beta globin chain of hemoglobin and we get hemoglobin S instead of hemoglobin A. The problem, of course, is that hemoglobin S is insoluble in its deoxygenated form. And so what happens is microvascular occlusion and ultimately tissue ischemia. And in the long term, the patients develop multi-organ dysfunction, including lung disease. Some of you may recognize the group TLC over here. Well, this singer, T-Boz, she has sickle cell disease. And the point of this all is really to underscore the fact that this disorder is a lot more common than many people realize. Sickle cell disease affects one in every 650 African Americans. The CDC estimates that approximately 100,000 people are currently living in the US with sickle cell disease. Worldwide, we see the birth of over 200,000 babies per year, and this statistic is on the rise. If we look beyond North America, we see that there really is a huge global burden of disease. Turkey's, uh, sorry, countries such as Turkey, Greece, Italy, Pakistan, India, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, Brazil, They've done a lot of research, particularly in Brazil, and many of the countries in the Caribbean. They all see large numbers of patients with sickle cell disease. And so taken together, these figures demonstrate that it really is one of the most common autosomal recessive disorders. Many more people are affected by this disease than certain other genetic diseases like cystic fibrosis that are heavily researched and well-known. And so what do we know about the lungs in sickle cell? 
Historically, it was always thought that this is a restrictive lung disease and ultimately culminates in pulmonary hypertension. But things started to change just a few decades ago when people started researching the pulmonary function in children with sickle cell disease. And what was discovered is that in children, we see an obstructive airway disease, and this ties into acute chest syndrome. So this illustrates a popular hypothesis within the sickle cell world. And at the center is hemolysis. The idea is to look at the phenotype of patients with sickle cell disease and bridge it together with hemolysis. On one end of the spectrum, we have patients with a higher hemolytic rate, and these patients progress more rapidly towards pulmonary hypertension. While on the opposite end of the spectrum, we have patients with a lower hemolytic rate, and these are the patients that tend to have more frequent episodes of vaso-occlusion, so pain crises and acute chest syndrome. The reality is that a lot of patients fall somewhere in between and can have features of both, but it still provides a framework by which to view the phenotype when tying it into hemolysis. So when considering sickle cell lung disease, we have to take into consideration that this is a chronic insidious process, very different from acute chest syndrome, which is an emergency and dramatic in its presentation. But what goes on in between these dramatic episodes of acute chest syndrome is repeated asymptomatic sickling, microthrombotic insults with vaso-occlusion, regional lung hypoxia, and ischemic reperfusion injury. In the long run, this damage to the lung parenchyma is what is predictive of increased morbidity and mortality. But the pulmonary interstitium is also affected, and there is remodeling of the pulmonary bed vasculature. There is endothelial hyperplasia, and this progresses so that we see interstitial lung disease, and ultimately irreversible pulmonary fibrosis results. As the disease progresses, patients are at increased risk for sudden death, secondary to increased pulmonary vascular resistance, perfusion and diffusion defects, corpulmonale, pulmonary hypertension, and chronic hypoxia. And just to note, it's important to remember that while acute chest syndrome episodes do promote progression towards sickle cell lung disease, sickle cell lung disease still occurs in the absence of any episode of acute chest syndrome. If we look at the pulmonary hypertension that develops, we come to appreciate that the process in sickle cell is unique and different than other forms of pulmonary hypertension. First of all, the etiology is multifactorial. It's driven by hemolysis, oxidative stress, arginine and nitric oxide dysregulation, increased vasoactive mediators, and a hypercoagulable state, as well as chronic hypoxia and variability in individual genetic susceptibility. When you look at cardiac pressures, things are also different. 
So increased morbidity and mortality in patients with pulmonary hypertension mean arresting mean pulmonary arterial pressure in the range of 50 to 60 millimeters mercury. But in sickle cell disease, this figure is 30 to 40 millimeters mercury. Vascular resistance is not quite as elevated as it is in patients with other forms of pulmonary hypertension. This is because of the underlying pathophysiology. So because you have chronic anemia in sickle cell disease, there's increased cardiac output. Additionally, there's decreased density of erythrocytes, which means decreased blood viscosity. So patients with sickle cell disease, but no pulmonary hypertension, actually have a lower PVR than people who are otherwise healthy. So if we're starting at a lower baseline, it means when patients do develop pulmonary hypertension, their PVR is not as high as you'd expect. So there has been some debate as to how to classify the pulmonary hypertension associated with sickle cell disease. Historically, it was grouped with pulmonary arterial hypertension as it shares many of the same pathologic features. But the issue is it also can share features with pulmonary hypertension that's caused due to left heart disease, lung disease, or chronic thromboembolic disease. And so in 2013, the pulmonary hypertension that we see in sickle cell disease was moved to group, group, group five. And this is just a cartoon illustrating some of the pathology that occurs in different forms of pulmonary, pulmonary hypertension. And you can see that with a pulmonary arterial hypertension, you have hypertrophy of the arteriole with proliferation and infiltration of the smooth muscle cells. And with chronic thromboembolic disease, you'll develop vascular abnormalities with stenosis or even complete occlusion of some vessels. Now, at the center of this pathology, and it's not just for pulmonary hypertension, but it's also key to the underlying pathology that we see in chronic sickle cell lung disease and in asthma. We have the problem of nitric oxide and arginine dysregulation. Nitric oxide is depleted heavily in sickle cell disease because it's constantly being used for its multiple purposes. It has anti-inflammatory activity. It also acts to decrease the hypercoagulable state by counteracting endothelial cell activation and platelet activation. It counteracts reactive oxygen species. And of course, it's key to pulmonary vascular bed vasodilation. The problem is that while it's being rapidly used up in sickle cell disease, the body can't keep up with the demand, and production of new NO is abnormally low. This is because when red cells slice, there are three big problems. Number one, free hemoglobin is released, and this in turn directly scavenges NO. The free hemoglobin promotes the formation of new free radicals, and these further consume 
be available NO. And then number three, the red cells also release arginase. Arginase cleaves arginine, and arginine is the substrate for the formation of new nitric oxide. So this cartoon illustrates all of these mechanisms. And in a nutshell, we have a problem of decreased NO production and increased NO consumption with hypertrophy of the arterial, increased intravascular thrombosis, which happens in part because there's no opposition to the promotion of a cell adhesion molecules, such as VCAM1, which promote adhesion of the leukocytes and the damaged erythrocytes to the damaged endothelial wall. And we end up with an environment where hypercoagulation and vasoconstriction dominate. This is a busy slide, and it goes over the metabolism of arginine and ornithine. But what I want to bring attention to is the imbalance between arginine and ornithine in sickle cell lung disease. So when arginine is cleaved by arginase, ornithine is produced. Ornithine, in turn, leads to increased production of polyamines and proline. And these work towards smooth muscle proliferation and also work towards building deposits of collagen peribronchially and perivascularly. And the end result is we have airway remodeling. We also have pulmonary vascular bed remodeling. And ultimately, patients develop pulmonary hypertension and lung fibrosis. In fact, the ratio between arginine and ornithine has been shown to be a useful biomarker for predicting the severity of pulmonary hypertension as well as the mortality in sickle cell disease. When risk factors were looked at for the development of pulmonary hypertension in sickle cell, what was discovered was that there was a difference between children and adults. So while in children, a history of acute chest syndrome is a risk factor, in adults, a history of ACS is actually protective. The other thing was obstructive lung disease as a risk factor for pulmonary hypertension, and we do not see this in adults. So jumping into the story of obstructive lung disease in children with sickle cell, what happened was a number of studies came out in the late 1990s and early 2000s. And they discovered that the restrictive pattern that had been so commonly recognized for many years was not what we see in kids. It occurred very rarely as the abnormality the more common abnormality was airway obstruction. And interestingly, many patients in this study and in several others found that patients that did demonstrate lower airway obstruction on their PFTs had never been previously diagnosed with comorbid asthma. Then in 2006, Boyd and her colleagues published this. And this 
study actually demonstrated that comorbid asthma is in fact associated with increased morbidity in sickle cell disease. So with this Kaplan-Meier plot, you see along the x-axis, we have time in years. And along the y-axis, we have the percentage of patients from the cohort. It was a cohort of 291 patients, so a well-powered study. Um, so we have the percentage of patients experiencing their first episode of acute chest syndrome. And you see with this top line, these are the subset of patients who had a comorbid diagnosis of asthma, while these patients did not. And clearly, the patients with asthma developed their first episode of acute chest syndrome much earlier in life than the non-asthmatic children. And so it became accepted that comorbid asthma is a negative prognostic factor. And it made sense in that regional lung hypoxia can promote sickling and ventilation perfusion mismatch can do so as well. Asthma was shown to be a cause of increased risk for acute chest syndrome, although the reverse was not shown. So acute chest does not necessarily increase one's risk for the development of asthma. Basic science studies also looked at the underlying pathology. And asthma and the lungs and sickle cell disease seemed to share an exaggerated inflammatory response. When transgenic mice with sickle cell disease were compared to wild-type mice, as well as asthma model mice. What we saw was that in the sickle cell lung, there was an exaggerated inflammatory response seen with markers in the serum on bronchoalveolar lavage and in histology. This occurred in response to infectious insult, allergic insult, and hypoxic insult. This just reinforces the point. But in sickle cell, we do have this vicious cycle of hypoxia, sickling, hemolysis, endothelial injury, vaso-occlusion, and that in turn causes more hypoxia, ultimately leading into tissue ischemia. So what everyone wanted to do was break into this hypoxia. And maybe we could do that by decreasing inflammation and maybe some of the same therapies used to treat asthma would be helpful in sickle cell. So one of the inflammatory pathways that initially looked promising was the leukotriene pathway. Studies showed that rising levels of phospholipase A2 predicted the development of acute chest syndrome, and they could also predict the severity of an episode of acute chest. Additionally, elevated levels of leukotriene E4 in the urine seems to correlate with the development of vaso-occlusive pain crises. The assistant uh, leukotrienes in the lung are known from asthma research to promote bronchoconstriction, smooth muscle proliferation, mucus production, and airway edema. In the vasculature, they lead to vasoconstriction, vascular leak, 
and an increase in cellular endothelial adhesion molecules. Unfortunately, the research to date yielded somewhat conflicting results, though this is still an area being researched and worthy of more investigation, but uh, it did not lead to quickly finding the magic pill, if you will, for the lung disease that we see in sickle cell. So in several years ago, where we were at was, okay, we know comorbid asthma is a negative prognostic factor, but it wasn't really clear how prevalent asthma was in children with sickle cell. There were varying reports. Prevalence ranged from 30% to 70%, and there was no consensus on how to screen for asthma. And part of this stemmed from the fact that there was no unifying definition for what exactly is asthma in sickle cell disease. There were, of course, patients that had classic asthma signs and symptoms and had an allergic phenotype, but then there were patients seen in these studies that had lower airway obstruction measured on pulmonary function tests, but no previous complaints of symptoms. And there were also studies looking at bronchoprovocation, and these studies found that there was a high prevalence of airway hyperreactivity in patients with sickle cell disease. And so the question came up, well, what does this mean? And who is it that we really need to treat? So part of the issue with a lot of these studies looking at airway hyperreactivity was that they looked at a mixed population of sickle cell patients. By that, I mean some of the patients in their cohort had previously been diagnosed with asthma, and some of them had not. And so we didn't really have a sense of really how is this clinically silent and what is the prevalence in a quote-unquote healthy cohort of patients with sickle cell disease, healthy from a respiratory standpoint. And so this was one of the questions I wanted to take a look at during my fellowship when I was in Montreal, because maybe it was as easy as just asking the right questions, and maybe they weren't really asymptomatic. Or maybe they were, and maybe we needed a standardized objective measure of airway hyperreactivity in order to make the diagnosis early so that we could intervene, because asthma potentially is a modifiable risk factor. So in our study, we did a methacholine challenge, and we enrolled 39 patients, 29 of which tested positive, so 72.5% had a positive response to methacholine. This was a cohort of patients who had never been diagnosed with asthma, had never been on any sort of asthma therapy, such as inhaled corticosteroids or leukotriene antagonists. And so we compared that with what the results were on a validated asthma questionnaire. 
So the Isaac questionnaire has been used internationally in pediatric asthma. It's been validated and it has a sensitivity of 85% in pediatric asthma. But in our cohort, its sensitivity was only 31%. So it didn't seem that a symptomatic questionnaire was enough as a screening tool in, in children with sickle cell disease. So just briefly about methacholine challenge testing. It's a great test in terms of its negative predictive value, but a criticism is that it does tend to be overly sensitive. However, because of the way it works, uh, whereby you nebulize gradually increasing doses of methacholine and see if there's a significant drop in a patient's FEV1 of their pulmonary function, we see sort of a difference in terms of how good the positive predictive value is depending on the dose at which the patient responded. In other words, if you get a positive result at a very low dose of methacholine, then it's considered compatible with true airway hyperreactivity. And if the dose is less than one milligram per milliliter, it's considered to be moderate to severe airway hyperreactivity. So most of our patients actually did test positive at a very low dose. So we felt that this was true airway hyperreactivity and it's clinically silent, but okay, well, this isn't quite normal. Is it clinically relevant? And that question is still being tackled as we gather more longitudinal data. An unexpected finding, though, was that hydroxyurea seemed to modulate the severity of airway hyperreactivity. So of those patients who had a positive response to methacholine, patients who were on hydroxyurea required a higher dose of methacholine in order to exhibit bronchospasm. So the study we did was not powered to look at the question of hydroxyurea. But since then, there have been some other studies that also seem to implicate the role of hydroxyurea in, in it, its ability to be protective of pulmonary function. This study was done at Toronto SickKids and they actually looked at children several years before the initiation of hydroxyurea therapy and several years afterward. And what they saw was that there was a significant, a significant improvement in the rate of decline of pulmonary function. Now we have to discuss obstructive sleep apnea within the context of sickle cell. First of all, nocturnal hypoxemia has been associated with increased episodes of pain crises. And secondly, the prevalence of obstructive sleep apnea in children with sickle cell disease has been shown to be higher than that seen in, in the normal population. So moderate OSA has a prevalence of 10% in children with sickle cell as opposed to only 5% in the rest of the population, of the pediatric population. So that's something else we want to catch. So this, this is, a, is a paradigm 
for screening for pulmonary hypertension. And this comes from the ATS, the American Thoracic Society. They published this in 2014, and it's in contrast to the guidelines published in 2014 by the NIH. So the NIH argued that it's not necessary to perform echoes in order to screen for pulmonary hypertension in sickle cell, and that echoes only need to be done if patients are symptomatic. But there is evidence that pulmonary hypertension is associated with increased mortality. And so the ATS working group argued that it's a relatively simple, non-invasive test and worthwhile because pulmonary hypertension that goes unnoticed could result in increased mortality. Furthermore, if you look at a positive echo with a TR jet of greater than 2.5 meters per second, and you combine it with an abnormally elevated NT pro BNP or an abnormally low distance walked on a six-minute walk test, then the positive predictive value improves. And part of the struggle we have currently with pulmonary hypertension in sickle cell, though, is that we don't really have drug therapies known to target the issue. There was a large study with sildenafil done, but it was stopped prematurely because the treatment arm actually displayed increased frequency of pain crises. So sildenafil cannot be used for people with sickle cell disease. The ATS recommends in severe cases off-label use of bosentin and other agents but studies have yet to be done. So the NIH guidelines also do not support regularly performing pulmonary function tests. And again, say it's only necessary if patients have signs or symptoms. But the ATS working group feels like it might be too late if you wait for symptoms to appear. And though the ATS has not yet published guidelines, pulmonologists working at sickle cell centers tend to follow children and adults regularly with pulmonary function testing. And so some of what I like to do is to obtain pulmonary function tests and start them, start them around the age of six years when the children can perform the testing, and it's important to get spirometry as well as lung volumes and diffusion studies, and to also trend a six-minute walk test annually. And some of what we do is borrowed from the asthma literature, and definitely if the patient has classic asthma phenotype, um, then treat the asthma aggressively. Um, we also want to catch obstructive sleep apnea, and this is perhaps even more important in children because oftentimes a TNA can be curative. And you want to suspect sleep-related hypoxemia or obstructive sleep apnea if you have a child who's having increasing difficulty with frequency of vaso-occlusive pain crises or acute chest syndrome or if they tend to have a lot of issues with snoring. 
In sickle cell, we like to target a baseline oxygen saturation of greater than 96%, in part because lower than this has been associated with increased risk for stroke. And if you have patients that are planning on long-distance flights or going to altitude, an altitude study can be helpful to decide if they temporarily need supplemental oxygen. Children can develop pulmonary hypertension, and studies have shown that six-minute walk tests are useful in monitoring for, for it. Um, and there is also potentially usefulness in looking at biomarkers, markers of increased hemolysis, trending the NT-proBNP, in patients that undergo multiple or chronic transfusion therapy, look at the ferritin lever, level as pulmonary hemosiderosis is its own problem and can lead to pulmonary hypertension. And trending the arginine to ornithine ratio might be something we want to look at in the future. So getting to intervention, there are many different avenues in, by which we might intervene potentially in sickle cell disease. It's a multi-organ, multi-system disease, and so it makes sense that we can target different aspects. And actually, this past year has been a very exciting year for advances in sickle cell research. So in July of this year, glutamine was approved. It's the first new drug for sickle cell disease in 20 years. And as it relates to the lungs, glutamine is important as an antioxidant because it's a precursor to the glutathione pathway. The other issue is that glutamine is a precursor for arginine production. And we talked about the issue of arginine deficiency and how it impacts the lungs in sickle cell disease. So patients with sickle cell disease at baseline, but particularly those that tend to have elevated TR jets on their echoes, tend to have low levels of glutamine. There was a study, again just published this year in February, looking at an antibody against antiselectin P. And so this targets the hypercoagulability. It was a phase two study, uh, but it showed promise in that it significantly reduced the number of pain crises. And there's also the thought that there's some degree of autonomic dysfunction in sickle cell disease. This has been more heavily researched as pertains to pain, but the respiratory system also seems to be involved. And this group is currently doing further research, but they had a study whereby they showed that there seems to be side-triggered vasoconstriction that hints at possibly early parasympathetic withdrawal or sympathetic overdrive. And part of the reason I put that slide up, quite honestly, is because so I have a quick shout out to colleagues in pain and integrative medicine. So, um, you know, of course, you're already involved in managing the chronic pain for these children. Um, but, you know, 
we definitely could also use your help in getting them to breathe better. And this case report caused a lot of stir. It was published in March of 2017. And this group in France actually reported what appeared to be successful engraftment for gene therapy. They used a lentiviral vector to successfully transduce the anti-sickling beta-globin gene to human cells in vitro. And 15 months later, uh, this boy remained event-free. And so this is exciting, but definitely still far from prime time. And taking it back to prevention in the lungs, we can do a better job at catching and treating lung disease early on. And so there is definitely a lot more to be done, but I do think we're at the brink of an exciting time and we can be hopeful. There's been a lot of momentum in terms of improved advocacy and research in recent years. And so the message I want to leave you with today is that one of the things that helps fill in the gap in sickle cell disease care is to mind the lungs. So thank you.